0: Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Massey. This week on Miranda Warnings, we're with Jeffrey Tubin. He's the best-selling author of The Oath, The Nine, and The Run of His Life, which was made into the critically acclaimed FX series American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson. He's also a staff writer at The New Yorker and the senior legal analyst at CNN. Welcome, Jeffrey. Hi, David. Hi, it's great to have you here. How are you doing?
1: Um, I am just well. I'm very grateful that I'm healthy and that my family's healthy, and that's not just a social pleasantry these days. It's something to
0: be no, very- before. No, it isn't, and uh, it's it's wonderful to have you. We're going to talk about your new book, True Crimes and Misdemeanors: The Investigation of Donald Trump. But before that, I want to bring up uh, a time when you were in Albany, New York, about 12 or 13 years ago. You were a speaker at uh, Chief Judge Kay's lecture series at the New York Court of Appeals, and you talked about, I think you talked about your book, The Nine, at that time. Do you remember that? I, I, I certainly I remember.
1: Speaking, I don't exactly remember the topic, but I probably was about the Supreme Court in one way or another. The U.S. Supreme Court,
0: yes. Right. The U.S. Supreme Court and Judge Kay had a lecture series. And certainly your book, The Nine, uh, about the nine justices of the Supreme Court, is uh, well known and well read and and provides great insights into the workings of the Supreme Court. And your new book, uh, True Crimes and Misdemeanors really provides uh, a similar insight to the Russian and Ukraine investigations and the various players. Uh, I thought it was a great book with enough new information and insights to keep the story fresh. Um, I want to congratulate you on it. I think you could have called it true errors and mistakes of Comey, Mueller, and Giuliani. Well,
1: you know, One of the things I like about doing a book like this is the complexity of both the story itself and the people involved. Um, they, They are, you know, like all mortals, neither all good nor all bad, and they were presented with difficult dilemmas personally and professionally. And I like trying to get into their heads and figure out what they were trying to do and, you know, pass some value judgments on it. But mostly, you know, what I find interesting in these books is storytelling narrative, like who, who are these people? What did they do? Why did they do it? And um, that's, and and that's what I tried to do in the nine about the Supreme court. And it's what I tried to do here.
0: Yeah. I think you did a good job of giving a little background. So there was some, Uh, empathy for the various characters, even if they, you know, weren't characters that you might like. Um, You know, I want to talk a little bit about some of the characters in your book. James Comey, for example, does not come out looking good in your book. But to be fair, he didn't come out looking good in his own book. Um, You know, you say in, in the book that he placed such a high value on preserving his reputation that he was willing to violate Justice Department norms. Uh, I really don't understand why he would do that, uh, someone who's dedicated his dedicated his career as a, as a prosecutor and following the rules that he didn't follow the rules uh, in this time of high controversy. Well,
1: um, you're talking about, you know, why he released that uh, letter, essentially reopening the Hillary Clinton investigation on the eve of the 2016 election. Um, I... Uh, I mean, I, I he, he's, he's, he spelled out at least his version of his thinking at all, you know, m- many times. And he said he felt like he had an obligation to Congress. Um, you know, I think um, you could write a whole separate book on all the decisions that were made in 2016 on the assumption that Hillary Clinton was going to win anyway. So why not try to... Uh, you know burnish your reputation for bipartisanship by you know throwing a shot at her on the eve of the election i think she felt i, I think comey felt i mean he said this that she he thought she was going to win anyway and you know he was always very concerned about preserving his relationship with the republicans in congress and he didn't want to be accused later of withholding relevant information from him from from those members of Congress. I thought it was a disastrous decision at the time. I think it looks even more disastrous in retrospect. Uh, but I think it is indicative of Comey's intense desire to curate his um, reputation. Um, and as you point out, I think he he i, I I, I want to be careful about the words I use. There, what, there is no formal rule or law that he violated by releasing this information on the eve of the election. But certainly, there was a norm in the Justice Department. I mean, as a lowly assistant U.S. attorney in Brooklyn, I knew that you don't release damaging information on the eve of an election. I, you know, I was involved in public corruption investigations when I was in AUSA. And, you know, they were, of course, at a vastly lower level than races for president of the United States. But even I knew that you don't do anything on the eve of an election uh, within 30 days or even 60 days, much less two weeks, as Comey did. But um, he he did it. And uh, I think the consequences uh, were dramatic, to say the least.
0: And then you you talk, uh, you know, obviously, at great length about uh, Robert Mueller. Um, I think you, you try to look at him kind of from a 360-degree perspective uh, rather than just taking a snapshot. And, uh, you know, your assessment is that he did tremendous work, uh, but some of the decisions he made undermined his own – Remarkable work, uh, in your words. And you said he was criticized for, perhaps, by Trump for being too zealous. But the, in in your view, perhaps he didn't have enough zeal in in pursuing his investigation. Uh,
1: that's right. I, um, uh, you know, I, I have a great deal of personal and professional admiration for Robert Mueller. I think he's a deeply ethical person, an honorable person. I think his investigation uh, had some. Enormous successes, whether it was the prosecutions of Michael Flynn and, and Paul Manafort and Roger Stone and Rick Gates, uh, but it was also... Um, you know how, how much information he revealed, in particular about the Russian efforts to influence the 2016 election. The detail and the comprehensiveness with which he proved the case that Russia intervened to help Trump was really re- remarkable. Also, you know he he you know built a meticulous case of obstruction of justice against the president. You know, his, his, and and um, so, so, you know, I, I, I think there were many uh, good things about Mueller's investigation. I think he fell short on two very important areas. One is his failure to subpoena Trump for, for grand jury testimony, and the other for his failure to state clearly in his final report that um, Trump committed the crime of obstruction of justice.
0: Right. And he didn't, he didn't come out and say it clearly. Um, Although he put in, it put forward all the, you know, all the basis and the facts that you would need to establish that. Um, You know, I want to bring you to a, a part in your book, when you talk about Mueller's recognition of nuance, I kind of felt that, you know, he thought if he put all these all these facts out that he wouldn't need to say it, that everyone would understand the nuance of what he was saying. Um, but that's not how it was played. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about it. you talk about a, a, a meeting that Mueller had with uh, acting FBI director Andrew McCabe, who was at one point, uh, you know, a subordinate to, to Mueller. Now he was the acting Director, and when they go in the room, um, Andrew McCabe gives Mueller his old seat at the table as a gesture of respect. And you say in the book that Mueller noticed that nuance. Yeah, I thought that was a, that that was quite
1: meaningful. I, I, I uh, you know, a, 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 any of us who have succeeded a mentor, uh, you know, feel a special obligation to. Um, show gratitude and respect. And, um, you know, just to, just to explain clearly in the, in the director's office at the, uh, at the FBI, there's a conference table where the director, you know, sits through much of the day with people who come to meet with him and Mueller had a particular seat. He always sat in and, and McCabe knew that. And he uh, when when Mueller came to um, you know get get his first briefing about the Russia investigation after he'd been appointed a special counsel, uh, McCabe uh, did not sit in Mueller's seat. They, they because that 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 was Mueller's seat, and uh, I thought that was a gracious and meaningful gesture by a uh, former protege who. Had moved on to the big seat eventually, although he wasn't there for very long.
0: Right. Yeah, and then you know, and then Mueller. I, I think Mueller was uh, you know recognized nuance, uh, recognized the meaning of language and words. And as you said, it was you know some of his words were a little labored in that report. Um, and then he kind of got outmaneuvered by Attorney General Barr. With the release of the report, and you go into that relationship quite a bit. Well,
1: you know the, um, you know Robert Mueller is someone who has devoted his life to institutions, whether it's the Marine Corps or the Justice Department or the FBI, and he has trust in institutions, and and he has. Um, tried to live his life in a way where he served the institutions rather than serving himself. And I think the way he conducted uh, the, um, the the investigation, you know, it, it was uh, vigorous, but it was also in recognition that he was a subordinate of the Department of Justice. You know, he was a special counsel. Uh, he was not an independent counsel. Uh, Lawrence Walsh and 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 Kenneth Starr were appointed under a law that has since expired, where they really had an institutional security that was different from a mere prosecutor within the Department of Justice. And um, Mueller was a subordinate in the Department of Justice, and he recognized that. And, and he felt his duty as special counsel was to submit his final report to his superior, the Attorney General, and trust that it would be handled in an appropriate way, and uh, it wasn't. It, it, it was um, it, 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 it was handled in a deeply political and manipulative way um, to to both diminish its importance and actively mislead the public about what what. Um, Mueller had had actually found, and, and I think there's a poignance in Mueller's trust in Barr to do the right thing with the release of the p- report, and even after Mueller, uh, even after Barr really betrayed Mueller uh, through his the way he released the report. Mueller never really fought back. You know, he he acted like the subordinate that he was and I and I think that's unfortunate.
0: Yeah, so so you you're saying that he he never fought back because he he understood the the hierarchy and the chain of command and and he was just doing his job.
1: That's that's right. And and um you know and and and, and he felt like um he had an old-fashioned idea about how prosecutors, you know, don't talk outside the courtroom. You know, his his office uh, was one of the very few uh, leak-free leak-free operations in Washington. Um, and he, he, he personally has, has maintained that code, um, ever since he, um, closed his investigation. You know, he, he very reluctantly testified before Congress. And I think that was, um, an an unfortunate episode, uh, for him, um, because I didn't think he did a very good job and he was, um, really, um, and, and it, it, did, it did little to illuminate his investigation or enhance Mueller's own reputation. Um, but, you know, that, that's not how he sees, you know, how he saw his role. He, he, he really didn't want to testify at all. Um, and, and, you know, he had also aged. I mean, he, he was not a young 74 years old when he gave that testimony. And um, I, I think that that didn't help his reputation either.
0: You go into uh, a great deal about uh, another uh, aging veteran, uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, who you, you say, even though he looks silly on television, he delivered real accomplishments for Trump, uh, specifically with respect to the Mueller investigation. Uh, you know, talk about that, because Giuliani, by by all appearances, seemed to be uh, really... Uh, not a great advocate for for anybody, um, but you say he had ultimately had a, a a a positive impact on the case for Trump.
1: Well, I have to say, I, you know, I, I, Rudy Giuliani was an absolutely great figure to write about in this book because he he was so. Um, conspicuous and 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 loud and and aggressive and crazy in many respects but uh and, and also i think he had a different uh and and role in in the russia scandal and in the Ukraine in the ukraine scandal as you point out in the russia scandal when he was uh um, Trump's Trump's lawyer um he i think he actually did Trump a lot of good uh in a in a cynical way in in part he was part of the team that delayed uh Mueller's decision about the uh subpoena uh in such a way that Mueller you know felt like the clock had run out he he had um uh th- that that he felt like the uh th- that that if he were to subpoena Trump at that point, you know the legal fight would have gone on for just too long, and so Mueller had to settle for this really almost pointless uh, written questions, questions and answers. Also, you know Trump's uh, uh, Giuliani's attacks on Mueller uh, on on cable news and whatnot, though they often sounded ridiculous to people like me. Um, they succeeded in politicizing the Mueller investigation. When Mueller was appointed, he was seen as a figure above politics. By by the time Giuliani was finished with him, you know, the investigation was seen by Trump supporters as sort of just another set of Democratic attacks, and that um, I think had real impact on on Mueller and and the. And the political impact of, of of his report. So, so in those respects, I think Giuliani was successful. When it came to Ukraine, um, he was disastrous and incredibly unsuccessful. I mean, he he basically launched at Trump's instigation this lunatic investigation of Joe Biden in Ukraine using um, his 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 dubious friends Lev Parnas and Igor. Um, and, and they um, effectively got the president impeached. You know, the, if Giuliani had not uh, initiated this ridiculous investigation, uh, Trump would never have been impeached. And, you know, I think that counts as one of the great failures of lawyering in in American history. So, you know, the Giuliani story is not a simple one. I mean he, he was, I think, Cynically successful with regard to Russia, but really disastrous when it came to Ukraine.
0: You know, and and, and that brings to another us to another issue that uh, I don't think was really dis- discussed a, a lot. Um, it got lost in all the you know Ukraine extortion and uh, and all of Trump's conduct. But why was the president's lawyer, with no official government role, the point person? On negotiations with a foreign country—that's just it the was, It was madness. I mean, it was, the whole thing was insane,
1: and and um, you know, I, I mean, I think that's part of. Um, I mean, you know, th- this this is you know th- this freelance um, diplomacy that that Giuliani was was conducting was not only. Uh, you know, it, it, it was it was politically unwise as well as substantively substantively terrible. Uh, but there's no doubt Trump um, authorized it um, because you know when we come to the infamous phone call that Trump made to um, President Zelensky on July 25th, 2019, what he was saying was what Giuliani was saying, what which was we want dirt on Joe Biden, or you're not gonna get um, the, the the financial support that Congress authorized for you. And, you know, that that was, I think, correctly seen by the House of Representatives as an abuse of power. <laughs> he deserved to be impeached. <laughs> so
0: I, I, so I, I don't know if he got swept under the rug. I think getting impeached is a pretty big deal. Yeah, but he... he, he he got impeached for, for that conduct, but, but, you know, what about the fact that just his personal lawyer was out there engaging in negotiations for the United States when he had no official capacity? Um, you know, you say in your book, you, 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 you quote, um, there's a quote in your book where you say, there are moments that are made up of too much stuff to be lived at the, at the time they occur. Um, that's, and that's a quote I, from my, my, my great idol, John Le Carré. Right, and that's what we're going through. There's so much stuff you can't
1: even get to it all. Um, that's, um, that's a that's a particular reference. I mean, I, I, I that's a quote from the great book Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and that that's a reference to May of 2017, which was the series of events basically in the in the 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 second two weeks of the month where uh, Trump fires Comey and. And then uh, Rosenstein hires Mueller, um, and, and it's just when you, when you look at all the events that take place in that period, it, it just seems almost overwhelming. Although I think it is true with uh, with the Trump presidency that you know it, it has taken place at such an exhausting pace that things that you know seem like ancient history are actually. Quite recent. I mean, the, the best example being, you know, the, the Senate ac- acquitted President Trump in the impeachment trial in February of this year. We're only in August. I mean, February is not ancient history compared to August. But, you know, given what's gone on with the pandemic and the economic collapse, um, it, it is certainly true, I think, that um, the events in my book, which effectively end in March, do seem like history, even though they're just basically a few weeks ago.
0: You know, I know you ended in March. I wish you kept going because I want to find out if we all survive. (laughs) Well,
1: (laughs) I I, I have to say when I finish a book, uh, I've written eight of them and, and I'm very glad to have written them, but I find them, you know, emotionally and physically very exhausting to write so so my first thought on finishing a book is boy i can't wait to start another no that is not <laughs> so i uh i am afraid the, the the last year of the trump presidency is i'm going to leave that to someone else or, or the last year of his first term who knows he may get real i,
0: I want to there's there's one somewhat trivial uh question that i have for you it's been eating at me i read this sentence three times it's about jefferson beauregard sessions the third and you said he's a sort of human onomatopoeia Um, i i I don't know what that means onomatopoeia is no i know what onomatopoeia means uh but why is he an onomatopoeia because jefferson beauregard sessions the
1: third Sounds like a Civil War general. For me. <laughs> okay, and and that's his political persona, right? That that, that you know, um, uh, m- many people's names have no particular significance. Um, you know, it, it, his 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 su- his successor in the Senate. Uh, the Democrat is named Jones. I mean, you know, what, what you know—that's it's it's about as generic American name as you can find. But Jeffrey, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions the third, I think, gives you a certain sense of who the person is, and that sense, in my experience, is correct.
0: Yes. Okay. I got it. Matt. So he sounds—he sounds like what he is. Right. Right. I, I, let me ask you about something that's all, uh, more current. Uh, uh, Kevin Kleinsmith, a former FBI lawyer, um, is now in the news. He, he may plead guilty to altering an email uh, from the CIA. And this is part of uh, the investigation into the Russian investigation. There's some claim of uh, some misdealings in the initial Opening of the investigation that Kevin Kleinsmith apparently was involved in. Uh, I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this investigation, into the investigation, and also uh, this issue involving Mr. Kleinsmith.
1: Well, you know, he, he was a lawyer at the FBI and he was involved in the reauthorization of the surveillance um, of. Uh, one one figure in the Trump campaign who was suspected of ties to Russia, and he made a false statement in in the course of his work, and he's being prosecuted. He's going to plead guilty, and that's a serious thing. It's 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 you know it's bad for anyone to do it, and it's particularly bad uh, for uh, um, how this um, you, know, it, 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 you know it's 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 certainly a black mark for him and for the FBI. What the president and his allies have been claiming from the beginning is that there was something corrupt or improper about the Origin of the FBI investigation in the first place. And, and Attorney General Barr has, or has directed one of his subordinates, John Durham, the US Attorney in Connecticut, to conduct a big investigation of that. And the Kleinsmith guilty plea is part of that investigation. As far as I'm aware, um, there is no grand FBI conspiracy to get Donald Trump and the Kleinsmith plea, as bad as it is, is no evidence of a broad conspiracy to get Donald Trump. There's no allegation in the what's been released that he was working with others. Um, his false statement was in a reauthorization of surveillance. So the original authorization for surveillance uh, had no criminal conduct associated with it. Um, So, you know, I I think, you know, one of the shocking things about the way Barr has run the Justice Department is that, you know, he, he has devoted enormous efforts to trying to discredit the Mueller investigation whether it's trying to lower Roger Stone's sentence, the only defendant in any case that Mueller, that that Barr has um, intervened in as his tenure as as attorney general, uh, trying to dismiss the the Michael Flynn case, and now ordering this investigation of of Russia. I think, you know, this is an unprecedented act by an attorney general to, to sort of, to try to redo and undo the work of the Justice Department, which was Mueller represented. But I think, you know, that's indicative of how Barr has conducted himself.
0: Well, to, to move things to a more hopeful note, um, I, I'd like to, to to get your 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 best guess as to who you think uh, Joe Biden might pick for attorney general. Um, I. I, I... I'll give you two
1: names um, that I think are are possibilities. One is Sally Yates, who was the deputy attorney general at the end of the Obama administration. And she played an important role in the beginning of the Russia investigation, sort of warning the, the, the new White House, uh, specifically Don McGahn, the White House counsel, that um, Michael Flynn was more implicated than, than, than he had let on. Um, so I think she's a possibility. Another possibility is Deval Patrick, who mm-hmm. was uh, the governor of Massachusetts for two terms, uh, served in the Justice Department under Bill Clinton as head of the Civil Rights Division. Um, I, think, I think he's um, certainly a, a possibility as
0: well. So, and, and I'm sure there are other names out there that I'm not familiar with. Well, those are I think those are two very interesting names. I appreciate that. And uh, Jeffrey Tubin, thank you for being with us here on Miranda Warnings to discuss your, your new book, which is excellent, True Crimes and Misdemeanors. Uh, that we're obviously talking about some very serious topics here. We do have a more lighthearted feature on Miranda Warnings called Music Book or Movie. So you can tell us what's helping get you through quarantine.
1: Um, I've been, we've been watching, um, a lot of British police procedurals, like series on, uh, on Netflix and Hulu and Amazon. Um, gosh, but I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting their names. They have all these generic names like undiscovered or un, unsolved or, and, and, but, uh, that's really, you know, my wife and I have, wa- have watched a lot of these. And what's really kind of sobering about them is that the British and Scottish Scottish accents are so uh, pronounced that we we use the subtitles, even though they're speaking English.
0: So after you get after you get few, through a few episodes, though, you can you can start, you start, to, you start to pick it up. But always are always
1: my wife and I are always. Could you go back? Did you hear what he said? So that's uh, that's
0: that's something that 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 we've enjoyed in quarantine. Well, again, Jeffrey Tubin, thank you for being with us here on Miranda Warnings. His book is True Crimes and Misdemeanors: The Investigation of Donald Trump. Thanks, David. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISVA podcast, available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.